Welcome to Influence Me, a series of podcasts where the prime focus is leadership. I'm Assistant Commissioner Andrew Short, and I'm going to be hosting a series of podcasts where I get to interview a variety of guests, both internal and external to QFES. The topic is something extremely important to us, and one that is central to the success of QFES. I want to talk with these guests about leadership, and I want to learn more about leadership from the thoughts and experiences of others. I want to be influenced. My guest today, Dr. Adrian Darget, was educated at North Sydney Boys High School and the Royal Military College Duntroon. He graduated into the Intelligence Corps and served as a platoon commander in Vietnam where, after a prolonged engagement with a North Vietnamese Army Heavy Machine Gun Company, he was awarded the Military Cross. His military service included command of an infantry battalion, director of joint operations and head of defence public relations. In 1993, Adrian was made a member of the Order of Australia and in his last appointment as a brigadier, he headed defence planning for counter-terrorism security for the Sydney Olympics, including security against chemical, biological and nuclear threats. Adrian Dajay holds degrees in theology, wine chemistry and a doctorate in international relations on US foreign policy in the Middle East. As an author, he has written six novels and his latest, A Russian Affair, dealing with a nuclear threat, was released by Penguin Random House in 2018. A keen jogger and sailor, he took up skiing late in life and he has successfully sat the Austrian government exams as a ski instructor. Adrian, how do you pronounce it in their language? That's uh, Schillera Anwerter. Adrian, it's a pleasure to have you as my guest today. I think that bio is far too long, Andrew. <laughs> We're going to spend this podcast talking about matters of leadership, particularly matters of leadership under duress. Now, my experience, Adrian, is that if you really want to see the leader in someone, then put them under duress, and that's where you'll see the real leader. What's, what's been your experience? Well, I think leadership is required in many different circumstances, be it the military or the fire service, private enterprise companies, or perhaps most visible on the news cycle, the political leadership, which varies, I guess, from sometimes appalling on both sides to very occasionally brilliant. But leadership, in my case, yes, we could talk, talk about leadership under fire, but, you know, the, the ambos and the fire service and the police, as we sure saw with that shocking accident, in Melbourne uh, yesterday, they're continually putting their lives on the line and they're continually under stress. And I guess the one of or two of the traits that come out of leadership under fire or under duress, one is courage, and that has to come from within, and the other is leading by example. And I can't go past the wing commander, Guy Gibson, who led 617 Squadron against the, the Dam Busters Squadron against the dams in the Ruhr in World War II. Now, he was one of the most courageous pilots. He held the Victoria Cross, the Distinguished Service Order twice, the Distinguished Flying Cross twice. And once he dropped his own bomb flying at precisely 60 feet above the water, and they lost eight of the, the 19 Lancasters in this, in this raid, he went back time and time again and led the next bomber in, drawing the flak away. And when they'd breached the Myrna Dam, he sent that half of his squadron home 
and joined the other half and did the same thing at a dam to the further to the south. Now that is not only superb, extreme courage, but it's also leading by example. And as leaders, we should never ask our subordinates to do anything that we would not do ourselves unless it's a highly technical thing that we don't have the, the qualifications for. Now, Adrian, just, just to the point of that example, how do you give a new or developing leader the chance to be able to obtain those attributes so they can make good decisions or they can, they can show courage in those events? What can we do for our junior leaders? Well, I think it starts, obviously, at the various academies, and we should post our very best people as instructors. And I know you do some of this. Mentoring is, is a great way to give younger people the skills that we might have learned from experience. We should always give them feedback, and mentoring is an excellent way of, of doing this. But if you need to criticise, we should always do it out of earshot of the rest of the team. And I think we've all been involved with the less than capable leaders who've chewed people out in front of other people. I won't mention his name, but there's a young rookie firefighter was going to one of his first fires. It was a taxi that was on fire with a gas bottle, which again emphasises the dangers that uh, firefighters... Uh, and it was, a, it was a wet night, and it was one of the first times he'd driven this big heavy truck, and he lost it on the verge. And he was fortunate to have an old Scottish uh, station officer, brilliant leader, who unfortunately has passed on now. But as they slipped toward a telegraph post, he kept saying, the post, the post, the effing post. And they pulled up about a foot from it, leapt out, put the fire out. And at the end of it, he took this young firefighter out of earshot of the crew. Now, the crew, you know, all knew that he was getting a bit of a reef in the, in the rear end, but he did it out of earshot. And lifting our younger people, training them, giving them feedback, the best leaders know how to do it. I can jump in here and share an example. I clearly had uh, made an error and I could see that the, uh, and it was the station officer as well, he had a choice on the way he was going to, handle this and to this day it stayed with me that he that he chose not to go the traditional or easy road back in that culture and because he saw me go well I could I should have done it this way or I sh you know I, sh I should have considered this differently and in the future I'm certainly going to, he, he actually didn't have to say it he, he led me to discover my own solution without having to take a hard line and that stays with me and I'm very conscious of whenever those times come up, I try to let someone find their own way to their conclusion. And sometimes you can't do it. Sometimes people are a little bit blind. You've got to provide feedback, which is a little, little bit more direct. But that goes with leadership. But I think, Adrian, given your history, that you would be able to appreciate and even advocate that it's always good to communicate first before you get any harder glove out. Yeah, absolutely. And if I could just add something to the trait of courage, 
it's not only courage under fire or at a road accident or when a building's uh, burning, but it's also the courage within to take a risk and delegate. Now, we've all worked for control freaks that no sooner they give you a task than they're looking over your shoulder telling you how to do it. But we have to trust, that have the courage to trust our subordinates. Occasionally, they're going to stuff up. We all do. But we have to trust them until they prove that they're not up to, to the task. When I was running Defence Public Relations, I had a lot to do with an old Mandarin secretary Ayers, who unfortunately is also sort of passed on now. And I would be in his office at least once or twice a week because whatever was running in the media at the time. But whenever I went in there, there was only ever two or three files in his in-tray. He was a superb administrator and delegator. And occasionally, a first assistant secretary or an assistant secretary would not be up to the mark. He'd give them another go, and if they failed the second time, well, he'd move them on. But we have to have that courage to trust those underneath us. Yeah, and that linkage to the people underneath us, I know, and I've seen this in my personal journey, their confidence comes off the back of your confidence. And, and whether it be confidence in the situation or whether it be confidence in them that you want to give them a shot and even be willing to accept some failings, which is a, another area which we struggle with in our organisations where people are so fearful of making mistakes that uh, yeah, we will, everyone becomes risk averse and, and in the end, you know, no one benefits. So that, that whole risk aversion thing, I think the media cycle now, Adrian, is, it tends to put some fuel on that. Yes, it does. Before I get on to the media, I, I think your remarks remind me of the tension and ambiance, if you like, in the workplace. And I would put a trait of leadership, and it's an odd one, but having a sense of humour it tends to release a lot of the tension. When I was running the Defence Force Command Centre, you know, runs uh, operations all over the world, I had a one-star admiral who it was Ian McDougall. He was the first submariner. He went on to command the Royal Australian Navy, and he was the first submariner to do so. He had an incisive mind. He was brilliant, but he also had a lovely sense of humour. And he rang me one day, and he said, Dashay, do you own a suit? And I, I could almost see him smiling at the other end of the phone. And I said, why, sir, I, I own three. And he said, oh, I am surprised. He said, the New Zealanders want, want to take you and I to lunch at the Commonwealth Club. They want something. So order the lobster or whatever's the most expensive, but set your beeper to go off before the sweets so we can get out of there before they put the hard word on us. <laughs> and it, it, it was that sort of sense of humour. and I mean, you can imagine running the Defence Command Centre when Ram Booker had stormed into the Fijian Parliament and we had to get 5,000 Australians out of there and, you know, he and I are briefing the then Minister for Defence, Kim Beasley. There's a fair bit of pressure and tension. It doesn't have to always be under fire. Uh, and Beasley was a wonderful Minister for Defence, but uh, there are other politicians that perhaps, uh, you know, we would rather not work with. But a, a sense of humour uh, tends to sort of level things. The media we can talk about because to being able to communicate well is just so important. 
it's what we spend time doing most each day. I'm not talking media, I'm just talking generally. In terms of communication? Yeah, in terms of communication and how good we are at communicating with our team, with our stakeholders. Well, a, lead, a good leader has to be able to communicate well. That's, that's critical. And allied with that is mastery of the media. If people in the team are not, uh, who may appear in the, in the media, are not very competent performers, then they need to do some training and get up to speed. And, and something, you know, having run defence public relations and defended the, the indefensible on more than one occasion, it's something that can be taught. But communication also involves listening. As a leader, we have to have an open door policy and not surround ourselves with yes men. A great fault with many leaders is that they surround themselves with people of similar views, which means they never get the alternatives to think about. Abraham Lincoln, the 16th President of the United States uh, from 1861 to 1865, took them through the Civil War. He surrounded himself with a cabinet of the strongest people he could get, despite three of them being vehemently opposed to his nomination for, for president. He brought political rivals in with views different to his own to join him for the good of the nation. And I just wish, uh, particularly at the political level, but also in other organisations, that leaders would do that more often and have alternatives to consider. Because in the end, if they're effective at passing a message which needs to be said, and sometimes it only needs one person in the group or the team to say it, because there, there will likely be others who have thought it, but they won't say it for whatever reason. So I agree, I'm an advocate being candid. Any advice to listeners around how to get the balance right when being candid? Well, that's an interesting question because there sometimes there are, uh, particularly uh, in the military where you've, you know, you've got a lot of stuff that's uh, secret and top secret, you can't always give your team the the whole of the situation, I make a caveat there, unless it's going to put their lives at risk and then you, you have to trust them and, and uh, you know, let them, let them know. But it's a balance to give them uh, enough information that they can carry out their task. They don't necessarily need to know all the sensitive stuff, but that goes back to winning their trust. And if as a leader you have the trust of your team, then it's a lot easier to be open up to a point. There's stuff that has to remain hidden. Well, then they're not going to bother about that. Indeed, they probably won't know about it. So it's a balance. I now want to take us into the final phase. The first question is, what do you wish you really understood? Well, that's a pretty complex question, but looking back, I was brought up in the in the fifties under the the yoke of Christianity, if you like. And I, I preface these remarks by saying I have a great respect for people's religion, regardless of what it is. But it wasn't until I did two degrees in theology later in life that I finally understood that religion is really an accident of birth. And if you and I had been both born in Baghdad, we'd be brought up as Sunni Muslims, not Christians. And the dogma of religion 
is at the base of most of the world's wars and conflicts. Uh, I wish I'd understood that earlier and contributed to a, a way to keep it restricted to the cathedrals and the mosques and the synagogues and out of politics. Thank you. Uh, question two, uh, what do you wish that other people understood about you? Well, well, that's also that's another difficult question. That's I mean, a, I was yes, 37 yeah. years in the military, and that's a very conservative organisation. And as a result of a, leading a fairly colourful life, and I've always uh, had a healthy disrespect, if I could put it that way, for authority, uh, I was pretty much a black sheep and an outlier. Um, that's it. I think if half the rumours about me were true, I'd be dead. But I'm, I'm still misunderstood, and I don't want this to come across as arrogant, but I'm, I'm actually quite comfortable with that. Uh, Winston Churchill once said, you have enemies? Good. It means you've stood up for something in your life. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm comfortable with where I'm at. Fair enough. Question three. This is probably the, the, the most unique question you're going to get in this batch. What's the strangest question anyone's ever asked you? I was once asked, what's your best insult? And I referred the questioner to Paul Keating, uh, who could turn an otherwise dull <laughs> question time into something worth watching. And when Dr. Hewson, who was then the opposition leader, asked Keating why he wouldn't call an early election, and I've got to say Dr. Hewson took this uh, barb by Keating very well with a big laughing smile, Keating said, mate, because I want to do you slowly. There's got to be a bit of sport in this for all of us. And in the psychological battle stakes, we're stripped down and ready to go. Uh, when it came to uh, yeah. a, a cutting remark, uh, Keating was a master. He, he was one of the best. Question four, what type of leader do you prefer? Some, a leader who is outwardly confident and strong and has, has respect because he or she leads by example. Uh, the captain on the bridge of a destroyer, for example, where the entire crew is in no doubt who is in command because they're outwardly confident, they're courageous, they communicate brilliantly, uh, they have an empathy for those they command, they listen, they trust their subordinates and delegate rather than micromanagement, uh, and, and they have integrity. They stand up for what they think is right rather than making decisions to please the hierarchy and further their promotion prospects. Uh, in, in the fire service, someone they can look up to and, to and say, yep, that's our station officer or that's our commissioner. Yeah, good, good answer. Thank you. The final question, how do you prefer to, to deliver bad news? And for you, I'm sure looking back over your history, you've, you've had to do that numerous times. How do you prefer to deliver the bad news, in person, by text message, or by carry pigeon? Well, that's a no-brainer, Andrew. There is only one way to deliver bad news, and that's in person. I was once uh, directed to, with a change of government, and quite clearly uh, I'd probably got up their nostril, but one of their first decisions was to cut my organisation by 50%. And I flew around Australia and briefed people in person. There's, there's only one way to do it. And in doing, you know, individ giving in an individual bad news, as we said before, it's uh, important to lift them at the same time, giving them not only encouragement, but the confidence to turn things around. 
Yeah, great, great answer. And that leads us to the end. So Adrian, it's been very enjoyable. I've come to know you now over a period and I always find myself gaining by any and every interaction that I have with you. I thank you for your service to our country when you were still a military man, or you probably still are. And I appreciate the continuing engagement that we have. I recommend to people that if they want to get to know Adrian a little bit better, then go to his website, which is www.adriandarje.com. Adrian, any final advice to, to people listening to this in terms of what they can do about their leadership right now? Some of us are, have it in our genes and, and are born with it. But regardless of whether you have it or not initially, leadership can be taught and learned and practiced. And uh, that includes learning from people who've had greater experience and are great mentors. Thank you. Thank you.